Hi, this is John Hemminghouse speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast, the ministry of Calkins Baptist Church in Milanville, Pennsylvania. From all of us at the Beacon of Hope broadcast, let me wish you and your loved ones a Merry Christmas. In honor of this wonderful holiday, Pastor Jones is breaking away from his series on the messages that Jesus himself preached during his time on earth to talk about 12 of the prophecies of the coming Christ. These prophecies not only concern the coming of the Savior, but even foretold of Jesus' death and resurrection. Have you encountered a person who says that the Bible is full of errors and is just a book of religious myths? You might want to encourage that person to tune into today's broadcast, for the prophecies of Jesus' coming death and resurrection show that God had long predicted the coming of his Son to die in our place for our sins. I pray you'll make an effort to grab a Bible, follow along, and consider the impact these prophecies of Christ have upon your life and your relationship with God. Well, it's great to have you back for our Beacon of Hope broadcast, and I'd like to break away from our series that we've been doing for the last several months on the messages that Jesus himself preached. Just for this Sunday, I'd like to take some time in honor of the Christmas season to talk to you a little bit about some of the prophecies of Jesus uh, coming. And I'll show you, depending on how much time we have, uh, 11 or 12 uh, prophecies. These are not, by the way, all of the prophecies concerning Christ by any stretch, but I just wanted to give you some highlights of what some of these would be like and maybe a blessing to you to see that God is in his word and that Jesus really is the promised Savior. And so before we get started, let's just ask God's blessing upon our time together. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the joy of being able to share your word again. We pray that you'll bless each listener. May you give them the ability to concentrate. May you give me the ability to be able to explain your word in such a way that it makes sense and is true to what you've actually said. And so we ask for your guidance and your protection, your blessing upon this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'd like to start by uh, just mentioning a little bit about the scriptures themselves. The Bible is not uh, written by one particular human author. Uh, we don't know, in some cases, what uh, the human author is, say, of the book of First and Second Samuel, two different books, probably the same author. Uh, not really sure who that author is. Uh, same thing with the uh, book of Ruth and some others. There are different theories as to who wrote the book, but more importantly, it bears the earmarks of being uh, the Word of God. And so um, the Bible is written roughly by about 40 different authors, best we can determine. The time period uh, that the Bible is being written um, is about 1,500 years. So these many of these authors um, did not know each other. And so when you look at fulfilled prophecy, it is one of the great uh, ways you can see uh, the earmarks of God's word and the fact that God was doing this, not man, because these, these authors who are writing prophecies are not even alive to see them fulfilled. Uh, they're just recorded later by a different author. And um, so, rather interesting. So, when we look at these prophecies, keep in mind, if I was writing a book, it'd be one thing for me to to um, uh, explain this prophecy is going to be fulfilled. I'm making up some kind of fictional account. But when you are dealing with someone predicting something that isn't going to be fulfilled for hundreds, even thousands of years, that's a whole different matter. And um, that's why the Bible really, one of the ways you can see it bears the earmarks of being the, the divine author, God being the author, not just mere men. Uh, we certainly had different penmen, but, but God is the main author. And so let me start in number one. 
uh, prophecy is that the uh, coming Christ is going to be a descendant of Eve. And this you could find from the Garden of Eden. If you uh, studied the account of the fall of man, uh, we know that Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan in the Garden of Eden. And we know that the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And so we know that the original sin that brought um, now uh, mankind under uh, um, rebellion and and um, being alienated from God, uh, that one sin was enough to to uh, destroy a perfect relationship with with our Creator. And as a result of that, there was really no uh, understanding of forgiveness at this time. There's never, I don't think Satan had even even known that this would possibly be in the mind of God. And so the Lord addressed Satan himself in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 when he said, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, speaking of the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so what we see is that sin entered the world, yes, but and death resulted from that. And uh, let me just briefly just mention that death has three different uh, ways you can look at death, three different types of death. There is spiritual death when man is separated from God. That's exactly what happened here in the Garden of Eden as man no longer is going to walk in harmony and fellowship with God. He's going to be afraid of God. Uh, he's going to be alienated from God. It was what we call spiritual death. Then there's physical death. And, of course, we understand that a lot more because that's when um, uh, spiritual death is when man became separated from God. Physical death is when the body and the soul are separated from each other. And so we have a body now in the grave. That soul of the, the person has gone somewhere else, um, either to heaven or hell. And then there is also eternal death, which is the eternal separation of a person from God in a place, a very literal place called hell. And so there are those three different levels of death. There's physical, there's spiritual, and then there's eternal. Now, when um, when Eve is, when Satan, excuse me, when God is talking to Satan here, he is saying to him that you're, there's going to be hostility between you and the woman, between your seed, Satan's going to have uh, descendants. Jesus will call uh, some of the people of his day children of the devil. Um, so there are going to be Satan's children, and then there's going to be this seed, this this divine seed um, that is mentioned, and it is, he basically says, he, that seed of the woman, this descendant of Eve, is going to bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the prophecy was that a Savior was coming, that that Savior would be a descendant of a human being, of a woman, no man mentioned, very interestingly, so there's a hint here at the virgin birth, and the Savior is going to crush Satan's power over mankind, but he's going to be hurt in the process because the, the prediction was the serpent would be attacking his heel when he would be crushing the serpent's head. And so the, the Savior would be hurt when he was destroying Satan. Now, when, when was that spoken? Well, we don't really know a date. We do know this. It was not less than, there, there's, there's no way we could say it would be less than 4,000 years before Jesus would be on earth. It was penned by Moses in 1400 BC. 
It's been passed down orally, and of course, when Moses is writing this, he's writing this under the inspiration of God, but but um, but it was actually spoken in the Garden of Eden, uh, whenever that was, uh, again, an estimate could be around 4,000 BC, but it's certainly not less than that. Now, a second prophecy shows up, and I'm skipping, by the way, some, but the second prophecy shows up in Genesis chapter 12. When God is talking uh, 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 generations later, this is around 2000 BC, will again be recorded by Moses in 1400 BC, but God is speaking to a man by the name of Abraham. Abraham um, is, is a uh, descendant of one of Noah's three sons that after the flood took place, uh, the world has gone back into rebellion against God as we tend to do. We're seeing it again today. And that's our tendency, is to drift farther from God, to want to do our own thing, to not really want God not messing up our plans and what we want to do. And so the world of Abraham's day was doing the same thing. They were getting into paganism, worshiping all kinds of different gods. But the advantage of that is when you make up your own god, you get to make up your own rules. And so mankind was, again, turning its back on the Lord. Now, the Lord from that uh, calls this man Abram uh, at the time. He changed his name to Abraham later on. And he calls him in this way. Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to read the first three verses. It says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, what is the... um, there are several prophecies that are, that are taking place here with Abraham. Again, it's about 2,000 years before Christ would be born. Uh, the, Abraham's had some requirements to receive these blessings. He had to leave his country, uh, his family. He's living down near the Persian Gulf, by the way, in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. We know that location. It's been excavated by archaeologists. We know that that, that that area was very advanced for that time period of 2000 B.C., God said, you got to leave your country, leave your family and your father's house, all of your relatives, and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And God didn't even tell him what the land would be yet. But here's what God said he would do if Abraham would obey, which eventually Abraham did. He said, I will make you a great nation. That nation is now called the nation of Israel. He said, I will bless you. And God certainly has blessed him. He said, I will, I will make your name great. Of all the people in human history, Abraham is one of the most famous. If you look at the millions of people who are who are in the Muslim faith, the millions of people who are in the Jewish faith, and the millions of people who are in the Christian faith, they all go back to and revere this man, Abraham. All of us appreciate him for being a godly man. His name is great across the world. He said, and you will be a blessing. And that certainly has happened too. And and many of his descendants have blessed the world. And God said, I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you. And you can find that down through history. Nations that attacked and abused the nation of Israel specifically, which was the nation that, that God is talking about here that he would found, those nations who have abused the uh, either the Jewish people or the nation of Israel, they have been cursed. And those who have blessed this little tiny nation, and we have been one of those nations that has come alongside of the nation of Israel specifically. Uh, those of you that are younger would not realize this, but Israel uh, ceased to be a country from uh, AD 70 until 1948, almost 1900 years. 
And when um, the United States was the key player in this whole thing, when the United States decided we are going to support a, a sovereign state of Israel, uh, the, the, the vast majority of, of world strategists believe this was, this was a joke. It wasn't going to happen, that the, the Arabs would gather around and would wipe Israel off the face of the map as soon as they uh, became, a, became a separate people. And it should have, humanly speaking, should have happened. Israel was forced to basically fight for their freedom at that point. The United States was in their corner, although I, uh, we would later supply them with, with, great, um, with great help militarily, but not initially. And Israel survived um, the really attempts to drive the, uh, this fledgling nation into the sea. And they have been reestablished as a people. God said, I will bless those who bless you. And certainly um, we have been blessed in this country and we are part of this fulfillment. But he says, in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. <clears throat> now, what was that statement specifically referring to? Is that seed of of Eve that would eventually come into this world, what God is saying is one of your descendants is going to bless the entire world. And that would be that promised Savior, promised way back in the Garden of Eden. Again, there's much more to say about that, but let me hasten on to the next prophecy and it'll maybe become a little more clear. This one is in Genesis 22. It's roughly in the same time period. Now, Abraham and his wife Sarah struggled to have children. And God did not see fit to give them a child until they were actually beyond the age of, of normal humans being able to conceive. God, uh, in a miraculous way, gave them a child when they were very advanced in years. Now, after a few years, the Bible tells us in, G in Genesis chapter 22 that God tested Abraham and he told Abraham to take his son and offer his son Isaac that he had been waiting for for decades to have. And was the promised son that, that was going to now bring this uh, new nation, the nation of Israel, help bring them into existence. God said, I want you to take him up on this certain mountain that I'm going to tell you of in the land of Moriah. And I want you to offer him as a sacrifice on one of those mountains. Now, Abraham incredibly, by this time he's learned that he can trust the Lord, whatever God asks him to do. And he obeys. And so as they are they're they're marching up the mountain um, headed toward the specific mountain of Moriah that that he was supposed to uh, go to. Isaac looks at his father and says, "He says, Father, he says, now here's the the wood and the fire, but where is the lamb?" And Abraham says, "My son, God will provide a lamb." And they kept walking. And if you come to the, uh, it's interesting. God refers several times in this passage to a specific place that he was wanting Abraham to go. Abraham gets to that spot, he builds an altar, and if you can imagine this, he binds his son and places him on the altar, and evidently, uh, we're not told specifics on this, but it seems pretty likely that Isaac did not resist his father, that he is now being lined up as a human sacrifice, something that, by the way, God says repeatedly in the scripture he hates. Why would God do this? Well, as Abraham is about to take the knife and plunge it into his son, an angel steps in and he says this. It's found in Genesis chapter 22, and I'm starting at verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, 
So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it for a burnt offering instead of his son. And so what a wonderful lesson this is on God providing uh, the sacrifice for Abraham instead of his son. His son did not have to be sacrificed on that day. And God was certainly testing his faith, but there's more to the story. And that is in verse 14, the next verse says this, And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now what is extremely interesting about this, is that we do know where this land of Moriah is. We do not know the exact hill or peak of this mountain that Abraham was using as the place of his altar for his son. But we do know that it's on the mountains of Moriah. Now, where are those mountains at? They're actually uh, Jerusalem. uh, Part of that city sits on the mountains of Moriah. What is also interesting is there are different theories as to where this exact place was. And God is very specific that in this place it shall be provided. This is a future, it's a prophecy of the future. Now, the Jewish people uh, tend to look at this as the place that that, um, uh, the temple would later be built. And so the idea would be that this sacrifice that was almost Isaac his son would would be a picture of the temple that would be coming. And so the temple is on Mount Moriah. Um, The question is whether it was that specific spot or not. Now, uh, the Muslims also have a theory on this, and that is they feel that, that this may be the spot where the Dome of the Rock would later sit. And so they also feel that Muhammad ascended to heaven from that same spot. And they change it, by the way. They don't have Isaac and Abraham here. They have Abraham and Ishmael. So they change the story, and they um, they make it about Ishmael instead of Isaac, and they, and they say that's where the Dome of the Rock will sit. But there is another idea which I think fits far cl- more closely with what the Scripture is actually picturing here. What you have is you have a father taking a son to the place of sacrifice. You have the son asking, where is the lamb? And his father says, Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb. Very interesting way of putting it. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. I'm reading directly out of the New King James here. Now, when they get there, a lamb wasn't provided. A ram was provided. That's an older animal, a little older than a lamb. Now, so the lamb was still yet to be provided, and then the prophecy was, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Again, I'm reading it directly out of the New King James. Now, what is fascinating about that is that Mount Moriah also seems to be the place where Jesus would would later be crucified. And my personal conviction is that that's exactly what the prophecy was. That Now, think about it. The Bible tells us that God the Father put God the Son to grief in Isaiah 53. It was the Father offering his Son for sin. It's interesting as well. that So you have this picture, a picture of the Father offering his Son. It doesn't take place at that time. But when John the Baptist, years later, 
centuries later, actually about 2,000 years later, when John the Baptist introduces Jesus to the world, he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Now think about this. In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. What was to be provided? A lamb. And so John the Baptist's prediction, I don't even think he understood what he was saying. This is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. The sacrifice on Mount Moriah was a was a testimony of what would later happen. Now, it's also interesting, there's one other statement that's made, and that is, it, in, in um, the angel was talking to him, he said, I'll, I'll read it from verse 15 on, the next verse says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have, have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now that word seed there is his descendants, but it's not it's not plural, it's one. One descendant. There's going to be one of your descendants who's going to bless the world. That would be the Savior. The same one that was prophesied in the Garden of Eden to Eve, and actually to Satan himself, who was being addressed to it. Adam and Eve were there to hear it. The same one that was prophesied to come from Eve now is prophesied to be a descendant of this man Abraham. Now Abraham, uh, we know that that the blessing, the same blessing, was passed down to his son Isaac. It's you would find that in chapter twenty six and verse four that that prediction, and then that same blessing in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That idea that a savior is coming through your one of your descendants got passed down to Jacob. Uh, Isaac had two sons, and Jacob was the one that got the, that blessing. And Jacob's name later is changed to Israel. That's where we get the name for the nation of Israel today. Now, Jacob had 12 sons. So the question is, who's going to be the one that is going to uh, uh, receive this great blessing that one of your descendants is going to be the savior of the world that's going to bless the world? Well, we, we come to Genesis 49. This is all still written by Moses. All of this written down 1400 BC, though it had happened before Moses was even alive, and again been passed on, I'm sure, by oral tradition, but then, of course, God giving him exactly the, the, what to say in the scripture. It says this in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 8 Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be in the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion, as and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter, now a scepter is used for kings. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, which means Judah is going to have the kings. And that's exactly what happened, by the way. Nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. What does Shiloh mean? It means peaceable. It's the it's it's a it's a uh, reference to the Savior, the promised Savior, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So Jacob is making this prophecy at his death, saying that his fourth son, his fourth son, which would be Judah, is actually going to be the ancestor of the coming Christ. And not only that, but Judah would be the ancestor of the kings. Now, what's interesting about this, when Moses pens that, there is no king of Israel. They've never had a king. They don't even have a land yet. And yet Moses has predicted that when they do have kings in Israel, Judah will be the tribe that will be the the, the dominant uh, uh, tribe to have the kings. 
and that the Messiah or the promised Savior would come out of that tribe. Now I'm going to jump forward in the, to the uh, fourth book of the Bible, the book of Numbers, for your next prophecy. This will be number five, and that is that the Savior would be a king and his birth would be announced by a star. Now, what's happening in this particular uh, prophecy uh, context is the nation of, of Israel still does not have a land yet. They've been delivered from Egyptian slavery. And they're out in the wilderness, and they're getting prepared to go in to try to conquer the promised land, which they would. There is a man who was hired to curse them. Um, again, we're not living uh, in, in so much of our society today is materialistic. It doesn't really take God into account. That was not the way that many of the ancient societies were. And by the way, it's not the way that many societies on, on the planet exist today as well. Many of, of uh, folks believe in, there's a God out there. There's a supernatural. And so uh, this one particular king hired a guy by the name of Balaam to try to curse the nation of Israel. I'm just going to focus in on, on one specific statement that this man Balaam made. It's in Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17. He writes this. He says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. He's seeing someone... And it's this poetry. That's why you see it almost sound like it's repeating itself. It's, it's poetic. That's, they, they rhyme the thought in, in Hebrew poetry. And so he's saying, I'm seeing him, but it's not close. Not, not time-wise. I'm beholding him. It's not near. Then he says this, a star shall come out of Jacob. Jacob is in reference to the nation of Israel. There's going to be a star that comes out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Now, the scepter, again, is connected with a king. And so the prophecy is that the coming of this king of Israel is going to be announced by a star. It's going to be connected with a star. That, I'm convinced, is exactly the scripture passage that led the wise men, when they saw this unusual star in the skies, to, to, to search out and find this passage and say, that must be the king of the Jews is born. And that's why they come, by the way, to the city of Jerusalem, that's where they would expect the king of the Jews to be born. Now, I'm going to jump ahead to the book of 2 Samuel for prophecy number 6. Now we're jumping ahead to 1000 BC, 1000 years before Christ would be born. And um, I'm just going to tell you about this passage. It's when King David now is sitting on the throne of Israel, the greatest of the kings of Israel. Um, he is the um, second king, and he is now from the tribe of Judah. He was the first one that will establish that the kings are coming from the tribe of Judah. And, and his descendants will have the right to the throne from, the, from his uh, ascent to the throne of Israel until this very day. Uh, the true those who really believe the scriptures, uh, the Jewish folks who believe their scriptures, will will tell you that there can be no uh, legitimate king of Israel who's not from the tribe of Judah. But not only that, but there was a a prophecy: the fact that that one of David's descendants, who would have right to the throne of Israel, would actually be the Christ, the promised Savior. So we're again limiting down who this person uh, can be. We started out by the fact that he was just going to be a human. 
And then uh, I, I skipped a few, but we, we limited, eliminated it down to the, the man Abraham. Now, Abraham is the father of more than one nation, but then we find out that, that um, as we look at more prophecies, that the nation of Israel is going to be the nation that the Messiah is going to come from. And then specifically from the tribe of Judah, we were told. And the tribe of Judah is also connected with all of the kings. And now we're told that... Um, that this there will be a king, a certain one who will rise up from the tribe of Judah, who's going to be the savior of the world. Why do I say that? I'm just going to read now out of Psalm 89, verse 3 and 4, that kind of lay this out for you. It says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. The idea is that David is going to have an eternal throne. Now, anyone who's going to reign eternally, and I'll see, we'll see other prophecies about this in just a few moments, if someone's going to reign eternally, then they can't die. Or if they do die, they've got to rise from the dead. And, and if you're going to have an eternal throne then and, and be a person then that never dies or, or conquers death, then, then that's a good indication that you are, in fact, the savior of the world. And if we'd missed it there in in 1000 BC, we fast forward now another three centuries to 700 years before Christ and the great prophet Isaiah. Now, Isaiah wrote one of the largest books in the Old Testament. And I'm jumping into chapter 7. And some of these passages may be familiar with you because I have referenced them in the weeks that we've been covering the messages of Christ because they really do tie in with many things um, in the New Testament. But in Isaiah chapter 7, the prophet Isaiah himself is talking to a wicked king by the name of Ahaz. Ahaz is a man who is faithless. He really is an ungodly man and dies a tragic death. But in spite of that, Isaiah makes a very unusual prophecy to not only the king, but to the people around him in the court who may have had more of a heart to listen. Isaiah says this, Then he said, Hear now, O house of David. Now you'll notice again, Ahaz, though a wicked man, is a descendant of David. All the kings in the nation of Israel then becomes the nation of Judah one day. Um, they are always from this this tribe of Judah. Uh, that's where the legitimate the David's descendants would 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 reign. Their dynasty would continue. So he says, "Here now, O house of David, it is a, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Sign is often connected with something miraculous. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Now, can you imagine? That's quite a miracle." that a woman who's a virgin is going to conceive a child. That is the prophecy of Isaiah. Now, let's remember this. This is 700 years before Jesus has been born. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, what's interesting about the word Emmanuel, the meaning behind that is God with us. So he is saying... There's going to be a virgin who's going to conceive a child, and that child is going to be God with us. Now, just a few chapters later, Isaiah writes some more about this. This will be so we have prophecy number seven the Savior would be born of a virgin. This was, again, predicted 700 years. Isaiah's never going to live to see this any more than Noah, excuse me, Moses lived to see the kings. 
and the fact that the nation of Judah, or the, excuse me, the tribe of Judah would be, would be the tribe of the kings. Moses never lived to see that. And, and Isaiah never lived to see the Christ be born. And yet he makes another prophecy in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, this is prophecy number 8, that the Savior would be both God and man at the same time. Now here's the prophecy. Isaiah chapter 9, listen to verse 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born. That's human. Child being born, that's human. Unto us, a son is given. And I would submit to you, and I think you'll see this in just a moment, the son being given, that's the eternal God that is given to man because he doesn't have a birth. Unto us, a child is born. There's his humanity. Unto us, a son is given. There's his deity. Now, why do I say that? And the government will be upon his shoulder. Remember how he's going to be king? The government's going to be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, mighty God. So the idea, if we miss the fact that the son was given, the child is born, if we miss this humanity and deity, we have the humanity and the child being born. Now we're told that the name of this one is going to be the mighty God. The everlasting father is the next descriptive uh, phrase for him. The prince of peace. Now, if he's going to be king and he's God, how long is he going to be king? Well, verse 7 says this, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and to establish it with just judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. So the prediction is an eternal kingdom by someone that'll be, remember the earlier prophecy was born of a virgin, chapter 7. Now in chapter 9, Isaiah tells us he's going to be God and man at the same time and his kingdom is going to be eternal. And you say, well, Jesus didn't, didn't establish a kingdom. No, he didn't yet. That's why he's coming back again. And he will establish his kingdom then. Uh, but, but get the point. He's going to be God and man. He was going to be born as a child even though he was the son of God who was being given. You say, well, will the world ever embrace Jesus Christ? Well, um, not, not voluntarily. Many people would never want the Lord. But listen to the last statement of this, of this prophecy. Remember how his, his, his kingdom is going to be forever? It says this, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The idea is simply this. God says, I'm going to make it happen. And he will. Prophecy number eight, the Savior would be both God and man. Prophecy number nine is found in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Now, Micah is a, is a, a prophet that, that writes a much smaller book than Isaiah. But I will tell you this, that, that uh, Micah lives around the same time of Isaiah. Did they know each other? It's possible. But Micah utters a prophecy which is far different than anything that Isaiah predicted or anybody else predicted. Listen to what he says. It's Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now think what he just said. He said someone is coming who is going to be ruler in Israel. There's the king again, whose goings forth have been from of old. That means he's eternal, from everlasting. So the eternal Messiah, Son of God, is coming to earth. But where does he come to? This little town called Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah. I've had the privilege of being Bethlehem. It is a small town. 
It's a small town. It'd be literally like saying uh, the Messiah is going to be born one day in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. Or the Messiah is going to be born in Scranton. Something like that. This kind of prediction. Now, why does he predict that? Well, that's what was David's birthplace, for one thing. But secondly, because God knew. 700 years before Jesus is born, the prediction was he would be born in the town of Bethlehem. Now, if you remember something, Mary and Joseph are not from that town. They seem to both have been from either Nazareth or maybe one of them was from one of the nearby towns. Nazareth was a very small town, maybe a couple hundred people in it. And yet, because of a decree of Caesar that probably was given out, by the way, several years before they actually implemented it in Judah, and just at the right time, here this this lady who's expecting and very much expecting a child has to go about a 70-mile trip down to Bethlehem with her espoused husband. They, they haven't officially been married yet because they haven't consummated their relationship. They travel all the way down to Bethlehem, and that is where... Jesus would be born. Now, Isaiah also had another prophecy. This is prophecy number 10. And it's found in Isaiah chapter 60 and verses 1 to 3. And I'd like to just have you consider this, that foreigners from other nations were predicted, and these would include um, very possibly kings. They were predicted that they would learn of of the birth of the Christ and they would come to see him. Uh, Isaiah chapter 60, listen to verses 1 down to verse 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. It's interesting, the Messiah was predicted to be born in a very dark day, a time, and it was. The Roman Empire was was just just squashing uh, resistance in the days of our Lord. The, the taxation was oppressive. There was much um, evil that was going on and injustice. It was a dark day. The nation of Israel was uh, very much afflicted when Jesus was born. And yet, in spite of all that, this the light would rise, rise, shine. Your light has come, was the prediction. And these Gentiles would come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Of course, the wise men fulfilled that. Uh, Prophecy number 11 was the prophecy that this Christ would do something unexpected, and that is he would die. And he would die specifically for the sins of others. Now, this is not something that was well understood at all before Jesus' coming. But let me read you some verses and see if you can't if you can't understand it and you can't see it now. And I've told people, we've talked, I have a Bible study on a weekly basis with a couple of my neighbors up here, and, and we, we talk about the fact that that um, it's much easier to look back and see fulfilled prophecy than it is to look forward or even be in the middle of it and see it. But listen to Isaiah chapter 52. I'm starting at verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant... And in that context, servant can either refer to the nation of Israel or an individual. And I'll submit to you that it becomes clear as you read this, we're talking about an individual, and that servant of the Lord would be a reference to the Messiah, to the Christ, to that coming Savior. 
Again, remember, remember Isaiah is writing this 700 years before Jesus is even on earth. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And of course, that happened with Jesus, uh, well-loved um, and, and exalted as in his earthly ministry. But then the, the whole thing turns quickly. He says, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, visage is your, your, your physical appearance. His visage was marred more than any man. Now, it's not talking about the nation of Israel then. It's talking about an individual who has evidently been beaten so badly, he doesn't look human. And his form, uh, the verse going on, more than the sons of men. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. This is something that was not expected. What is happening to the servant of the Lord here is something that was not anticipated. What would that be? Well, I'll skip down, uh, and the whole passage is just full of prophecy and prediction. This is I'm now in Isaiah 53, but let me skip down to verse three, and this is now a scene as as he is um, he, he's going to the crucifixion. He is despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, this is an interesting statement. Again, this is why it could not be in the nation of Israel. A nation doesn't suffer for the sins of someone else. A nation will suffer for their own sins. You look down through the whole Old Testament, you find that repeated uh, truth that when a nation turns its back on God, specifically God's own people, God does judge them. But he doesn't judge them for the sins of other people that aren't even connected with the nation. This is not, this is an individual that is suffering on the behalf of other people. If we missed it in verse 4, listen to verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes, you get stripes from being whipped, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, I want you to think about this. If this is a, the Messiah, and this is, this is the, the predicted Savior, was not, this was not expected to happen. God said the kings aren't going to expect this to happen. But he's going to suffer, and he's going to suffer for us. And then it made this tremendous statement, the Lord, and that is a reference to God the Father, has laid on him, that would be God the Son, the iniquity, the sins of us all. Which means this, that picture that Abraham had of sacrificing his son, that's now expressed again in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, that this is going to happen to the Messiah. If we missed that, we'd get it again in verse 10, same chapter, Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord, and that's a reference to God the Father, to bruise him, God the Son. He has put him to grief. God the Father put God the Son to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. And what was was Abraham told to do with his son Isaac? Make him an offering. 
See, God withheld Abraham from taking the life of his own son. That's repulsive. Human sacrifice is repulsive to God. But that's exactly what had to happen. Jesus Christ had to lay down his life to solve the sin issue for mankind. And this was prophesied, that the Christ would do something unexpected. He would die for the sins of others. I do have time to get to prophecy number 12. And for that, I'm going to actually back up in time to the book of uh, Psalms. And I'm going to read you Psalm 16 and verses 9 to 11. Now in Psalm 16, 9 to 11, there is a prophecy of resurrection. Listen to what it says. Therefore, my heart is glad. David, by the way, is writing this. Remember the same man that was told that one of his descendants is going to have an eternal throne and would be the Savior. David writes, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in in Sheol. Sheol is the realm of the dead. What David is expressing is when I die, I can rest in hope. And that hope is a confident expectation that he's going to rise from the dead again. Because he says, you'll not leave my soul in the realm of the dead in Sheol. I'm not going to stay in the realm of the dead. But he makes another statement, which is even more significant. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Who's the Holy One? Well, the Holy One is is the promised Savior. And what David is saying is he's saying, I'm going to rise from the dead one day, and also your Holy One, your Messiah, is not even going to see corruption. His body is not going to rot in the grave. Well, if that's going to happen, then what would happen? Well, that would mean that Christ would have to rise from the dead, which he did. The the, the, um, Apostle Peter... Apostle Paul, they both will reference this prophecy. And Peter points out in Acts chapter 2 that this clearly cannot be David talking about the fact that you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. It couldn't be David uh, thinking about himself because his body is, is corrupted in the grave. He, he hasn't risen from the dead yet. It's going to happen, but he hasn't yet. Whose body did not rot in the grave? That would be the Messiah. So Christ was prophesied that his body would not rot in the grave. The verse 11 says, You will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And that is actually picturing Christ's ascension to God the Father's right hand. Let me give you some conclusions from all of this. First of all, God's plan to send his Son to save us was revealed from the very dawn of time. We go back all the way to the Garden of Eden, And we had that prediction about a descendant of Eve who would one day crush Satan's power. That prophecy hung and was passed down through mankind ever since the Garden of Eden. Number two, God's God's plan was to send his own son, not an angel, not some alien. God's plan was to send his own son to earth to save us, which is astounding. And that would be, again, predicted in places such as Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, where it talks about the child being born, the son being given, and the fact that his name would be called Mighty God. It also was shown up in, in, in the prophecy of the virgin birth, where the virgin will conceive and bear a son, call his name Emmanuel, and we know that Emmanuel means God with us. So we see God's plan was to send his own son to earth to save us. 
third thing we we have to conclude from this is that over the years, more and more information was given about the, who the Savior would be. For instance, that he would be a human. Then he would be the, uh, we just, again, we skipped some, but the son of Abraham. Then he'd be descendant of, of, of Abraham's great-grandson, Judah. A specific tribe, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now we're looking at a specific tribe, and now we're, we know that they're going to have the kings, and, and it would go from there. Uh, fourthly, we have to conclude that these prophecies were dispersed throughout the Old Testament era uh, among authors who lived centuries apart and obviously never knew each other, which again argues for the, for the veracity of this, for the reality of this. These guys didn't even know each other. Um, so many of the prophecies were, were made, and these men would be long in the grave, centuries in the grave, before the prophecy was actually fulfilled. Number five, we have to conclude that the variety of human penmen and the highly specific predictions that were fulfilled in exact detail, even to the very town Jesus would be born, argue forcefully, forcefully, excuse me, that the Bible is God's in, infallible word, that it's absolutely true. We also have to conclude, number six, that prophecies about Christ's death were not understood. That even itself was predicted, but they too were literally fulfilled. And since God's prophecies concerning Christ's death and resurrection were not foreseen or well understood, it is very possible, by the way, that that there are prophecies concerning future events that we don't foresee or understand. And so we have to be very careful when we try to predict what's coming in the future, because there's high likelihood that we don't understand it all. Matter of fact, I can I can pretty well guarantee you that. Number eight, we could also say that since God literally fulfilled the prophecies concerning Christ's birth and his death and even his resurrection, we can expect him to literally fulfill prophecies concerning Christ's return. And you may say, well, Pastor, there have been so many people talking about Jesus' return, and it's never happened. And, and you know, it just gets to the place where it's kind of ridiculous, don't you think, after a while? Well, let's remember that Adam and Eve's uh, uh, prophecy that they that they heard that the a Messiah would be a descendant of Eve that wasn't fulfilled. We know for at least four thousand years. The prophecy of Abraham that one of his descendants that would take two thousand years before Jesus would be on the scene, and and so centuries went by with all of these prophecies. And matter of fact, it's rather interesting. Because Peter talks about this very thing, about, about how people will, will, will mock. Here's what he says, uh, mock the fact that Christ is going to return. He says, knowing this first, I'm in Second Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to close here with verses 3 and, and following. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and that's really the problem. They just want to do their own thing. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now Peter says, For this they are willingly they willingly forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. He's saying they're willingly forgetting God cre- God's creative power, the fact that God created this whole thing. And then he says that because they're willingly forgetting something else, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. They not only want to deny God's creation and the fact that he's the creator, but then they want to deny the flood. The fact that God did judge the world once before. And can I say this? There is evidence all over the planet 
of the of the worldwide flood. And yeah, we're doing the same thing exactly what Peter said we would do, and that is we're denying it. Oh, that's not true. We you know we we've we've disproven all that. No, 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 we haven't. You'll find evidence of 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 a worldwide flood all over the planet. You really will. Now he says, Peter goes on, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, the same God that spoke by his word, creation into existence, that spoke and the flood came. The same word, they're reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, what's he saying? He's saying, look, the same God that created, that spoke this world into creation is the same one that says that Christ is going to return. And it says, I'm going to judge this world for what they've done. And it doesn't matter how many centuries go by, believing people can and will and should hang on to God's promise because the same Lord that that spoke this world into creation, that has fulfilled prophecy after prophecy, though it took centuries many times for it to happen, that same God is the one that's saying, Christ is going to return, I'm going to judge the world. So here's what he says. I'm skipping down to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come. As a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And how true that is. Our God is going to keep his word. Live in light of that reality. May the Lord bless you. And I hope you all have a very Merry Christmas. If you have a spiritual need and would like to speak to someone who can help you, you can email us at help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. If you would like to see some of the original video sermons of the series Pastors have been working through concerning the messages of Christ, you can find them on our Facebook page at Calkins Baptist Church. If you know someone who is shut in or otherwise unable to attend church in person, we live stream our service weekly. You can look for that service to be streaming starting in just a few moments at approximately 10 a.m. on our Facebook page. We're also just beginning to upload videos of our services to YouTube. So if you don't have Facebook and would like to view a message, you can search for Calkins Baptist Church on YouTube and you'll find the beginning of our presence there. If any of you would like to share this radio message with a friend, you can find a link to our podcast on our Facebook page. Just look for a Radio Bold icon on our feed. Also, with Christmas rapidly approaching, we have a couple of services that might be of interest to you. This year, we have scheduled our annual Christmas program for tonight, December 20th at 6.30 p.m. Mainly due to COVID, we don't have our normal cantata in place slated for this evening, but we do plan to have several special musical numbers with scripture passages interspersed in between. It should be a spiritually uplifting evening. Also, our annual Christmas Eve service is still scheduled for 6.30 p.m. We plan to hold both of these services in our family center behind the church sanctuary. You're welcome to join us, and we hope to see you there. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening.